1996, I was stationed on a 180-foot Coast Guard cutter called the Mariposa, uh, and it was a 180-foot seagoing buoy tender, um, basically off the coast of Washington, Oregon, California. We would work aids to navigation. I know it sounds really interesting, like buoys, the buoy tender. We would Hey, ships have to know where to go, so it was a buoy tender. Anyway, there, I was in the engineering department, and I was pretty intimately acquainted with how the ship worked. And just for any nerds out there that care about this, there's the, the way that the ship moved was through a diesel-electric system. So you've got two massive train engines in the engine room, like, like locomotive-sized engines. And they turned two massive generators, which created a lot of electricity, like 440 volts and enough amps to like rip your body in half if you got hit with it. And, and then they go to the, this big switchboard, and all that electricity gets funneled into one main motor. So if you think of like a motor in a remote control car or on an electric drill, think a motor like that, only like the size of a average size bedroom, like just this massive motor, and that's what propels the ship. And it's loud and powerful, and, and yet not all that dangerous as if everything is going correctly. For the most part, because of insulated wires and heat shields and insulation over all the exhaust ports, because of warning signs and automatic shutoff systems, for the most part, working in an engine room was relatively safe. I, I wouldn't say that about like fishing boats. I've been on a lot. Oh my gosh, there's some nasty ones out there. But in Coast Guard vessels, it's all about safety, you know, all this stuff. So all of the safety systems, insulation, they kind of created a barrier or a safety net so that uh, with a small human error, you, you could make a mistake and, and it wouldn't be catastrophic loss of life or property, okay? Uh, th th there's safeties built in. But then something out of the ordinary happened, and it happened at a most inconvenient time. We were off the northern coast of Oregon, and we were going to work a buoy that was several hundred yards off of a rocky shoreline, but it was windy, and the current was ripping, and then something happened. We lost power to the main engine, right? So, like, the ship cannot go now, and it is moving in the direction of those rocks. Alarm sounded, the engineering team gets briefed, and here's what happened. It turns out the solution was a simple fix, but two things made it extremely dangerous. One is, like I said, we're now headed toward the rocks pretty quickly. So we had to do it quickly. And number two is to fix the problem, we had to work behind all of those systems of safeties and precautions and insulation. We had to get behind that switchboard. Now think about playing the game Operation, only instead of the game Operation where you hit the side and it just gives you a buzz, you could die. No, I'm still here, so you know it's all okay, we, we made it, we fixed the thing, and uh, uh, that's okay. Um, my point is this, most of the time in life, we are not thinking about the power of the things that we encounter every day. And that's because most of the time, we are shielded and insulated or ignorant about such things. I mean, just take the sun, right, for example. It is a nuclear reactor, basically. <laughs> like, and thank goodness it hasn't exploded yet or something. But, I mean, I haven't died from it. I've gotten some sunburns. But. And when we fly in our airplanes, like, yeah, there's fuel tanks underneath, but there's also, like, jet fuel in the wings. And I haven't blown up yet, right, Andy? But and Andy's a, what do you call that, reassigned pilot. Um, 
But I mean, yeah, you're like, you're flying 500 miles an hour in a jet plane with fuel in the wings that you're flying. And it's crazy, right? Um, we live at homes with electricity running through the walls all the time, but we've got breakers that shut off the minute we go to ground or GFIs or these kind of things. So we, we don't really often have fires like that or get electrocuted, thank goodness. Usually, we just pay attention to our physical world, but we live in a world that's more than physical. It's more than we can see and touch and sense with our five senses. We live in a very spiritual world as well. And usually we don't even recognize the behind the scenes, but sometimes, occasionally, the veil seems to be pulled back. And sometimes we encounter the Spirit of God in more expressive ways, more obvious ways, and sometimes in more dangerous ways. In our text this evening, the early church has been threatened by the religious leaders of the day. And they're threatened because they're preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. But instead of cowering into a dark corner, they pray that God would give them boldness in the spirit to continue to proclaim the good news. In Acts 4.31, we read that when they prayed this prayer, the place where they were began to shake, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's where we pick up the story now. So if you're able, please stand with me as we take a look at Acts 4. 32 through 511. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite a Cypri of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which when translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, well, he sold it and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not also under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And he heard these words, and he fell down, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, tell me whether or not you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that's the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead 
And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's passages like this that I think make an important statement about why I've chosen to preach through books of the Bible. I would not have picked this one. (laughs) Like, can't we just like skip over all the weird ones and just get to the stuff where Jesus loves everybody? Um, but this is important for us to, to wrestle with these things. And even if we don't always have clear answers like we love in the 21st century, um, it's important for us to, to be confronted with hard things because life is full of hard things. All right. Well, let's face it. I mean, this is a weird story. Granted, granted, If you're here to hear stories of the Bible preached on, it's full of weird stories, right? Like we we have stories about this one we worship, Jesus, who walked on water. I mean, that's that's a weird story. Uh, We have a weird story about a God who becomes a human being who willfully goes to a cross to be crucified and then rose from the grave. Like, that's a really weird story. Um, Those things are not ordinary. They don't happen to us every day. That's why they're in the realm of miracles or signs and wonders. They're not the ordinary stuff that happens to us. So if that never happens to you, it's okay. You're not a deficient Christian. You're just a normal person. But for the most part, these extraordinary things that we read about in the Bible, they tend toward life. They're a little more palatable, palatable, whatever, than this. This story is strange in a different sort of way. The God of grace and love seems to instantly take the life of two people for lying. We'd all be dead if we could, right? Like, if we ever told a lie. Okay, so very little explanation about why this happens. Very little time to turn back and explain. Just instant judgment. Like, what is going on in this story? I have your attention. (laughs) I have my attention too. I want to find out. As you might expect, there's lots going on in the story. And in order to, I think, to, to help us understand best, I'm going to work from higher level and then bring it down to a more like practical, what does it mean for you at Letter Streets Covenant Church? So uh, I want to start with some theological concepts, okay? Um, I, I, I'm going to take a stab at what I think Luke is trying to communicate, Luke, the writer of Acts, in communicating this story in this way. And I'm going to give three things I want to talk about. One is temple. So if you're a note taker, temple, that's one of the three. Trinity is the other one. Trinity Sunday, isn't there? And spirit. So those are our three theological overarching things I want to talk about first. Temple. In the classic Jewish religious system before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the tabernacle and then the temple were the places of intersection between heaven and earth, between God and human beings. Of course, the Jews believe that God is present in everything, or not in everything, but anywhere. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He created all things, but they also believe that there's a special hot spot, if you will, a holiness that is unique to the Holy of Holies in the temple. The temple was divided into these sectors with outer courts taking up most of the room. Gentiles and Jews and men and women, they could all hang out in the outer courts of the temple. And then there was the court of the Jewish women, which got a little more specific. And then the court of the Israelites, where really not all Israelites, but just Jewish Israelite men could go into. And then there's the, the court of the priests and then the holy place. And finally, the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, all right? 
most restrictive access. And in the temple, in the court of the priests, was the altar where the sacrifices were made. These sacrifices were for all kinds of things. You've heard of atonement before. That's where an animal is sacrificed to forgive sins. There's also grain offerings and celebration offerings and uh, offerings that, that work to uh, reconcile people together, pe- pe- person to person, not just person to God. So all kinds of sacrifices would take place on this altar in the temple. Now, starting with the teachings of Jesus, though, we get some foreshadowing that the temple was beginning to be obsolete in the mind and the theology and the way of Jesus. Not because the temple was bad or because God had a bad idea about how to do things, but because Jesus was ushering in a new age, a a new way of seeing the world, the age of the Spirit. With Jesus, the presence of God was no longer hottest or thickest or whatever concept you want to use, holiest. It was no longer centralized in the holy of holies. It was present where? In the person of Jesus. Because when we see the ministry of the earthly Jesus for those three plus years, he, he was an adult doing ministry, we see him wherever he is, demons can't handle it. Boom, they're, they're out. Uh, he, he touches people and they heal. And he, he controls the weather. Like the, only God can do that. The Messiah was never supposed to be able. There's no prophecies about the Messiah, David's descendant, controlling weather. That's a God thing. Okay, so, so the temple's now centralized in the person of Jesus. Before Jesus, if you wanted to get close to God, you knew you could do it at the temple. You bring an offering, you sacrifice it at the altar, you draw as near as you can. But after Jesus, faithful followers of God were to place their faith in him, trust in him to be their sacrifice, turn our lives over to him. His followers would become, we should become living sacrifices. That's what Paul tells us in Romans. Now, it took a while for Peter and the early church to figure this out, but they began to see it. Now, here's an example. Right from our, our passage uh, in chapter 3 of Acts, you, you see this man who's crippled, and he's sitting on the steps of the Nicanor Gate, most likely, the beautiful gate, and it's outside the court of the Israelites and the court of the priests where the, where the altar is. It's outside of the Holy of Holies. And it's on those, those steps outside of those special places that Peter encounters him and the spirit of the risen Jesus heals him. God's presence outside of where it was supposed to be by Jewish theology. Now, in our text this evening, we can see how Luke is driving this point home. Notice that the people are bringing their offerings where? Not to the altar in the temple, but to the feet of the apostles. There's a shift taking place. In verse 35, spirit-filled people place their money at the apostles' feet so it can be distributed to those in need. In verse 37, Barnabas sells a tract of land and lays the money at the apostles' feet, not the altar. In chapter 5, 2, Ananias brought a portion of the money from his sold land and brings it to the apostles' feet, not to the altar in the temple. And in chapter 5, 10, Sapphira falls dead after lying about her role in insufficient offering. When she falls dead, where? At Peter's feet. They used to fall dead when you did things like touch the Ark of the Covenant, both in Raiders of the Lost Ark and in the Bible. 
And the theological statement here is that the Spirit of God is finding a new center of location, no longer in a stone temple, but in the hearts of flesh and blood of the apostles in the church. Later, this concept will be more fully developed in the teachings of Paul, but here it's in its infancy in the form of a story. God is not contained in buildings, in temples, in church buildings like this one, or even in the fanciest cathedrals you've ever seen. He's in the hearts of his people. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized and received the Holy Spirit, you're part of that temple. And if the person next to you is like that or anywhere else in this room, think about the way we treat each other as part of the temple of God. You would never come into the holy place in the temple of the Jews and mistreat it or blaspheme or treat somebody like trash in there. All right? We, we bear God's image and his spirit. That means we need to think about how we treat one another. Temple. Second one, Trinity. It's Trinity Sunday, so I'm just so happy that this happened to work out, that the text has Trinity in it. One of the great mysteries of the faith is that God exists in some Trinitarian union of mutual love, oneness and threeness. God is a relationship. Some of you know Daryl Johnson. He's fond of saying at the center of the universe is a relationship, the triune God. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible. Instead, what you find is what some people refer to as the Trinity in solution. You know, sometimes if you do an experiment at, at home and you mix sugar and water or something like that, you, you can't really see the grains of sugar after a while, right? But you've got it in solution. You know the ingredients. How do you know? Well, you taste it. You can't see it. You can't always prove it, but you can taste it. It's in solution. That is, the, the, the Trinity is less of a theological construct, and it's more of something we simply experience in the Bible. The early Christians were Jewish people, and they were strict monotheists. Yahweh was the one true God. But after the resurrection of Jesus, these people who had been monotheists their whole life, who were passionate Yahweh worshipers, they begin to worship Jesus. Not as a different God, but as part of God. And so already in the early church we see this, uh, uh, not Trinity yet, but like a binary kind of thing. There are several passages of Scripture that push that envelope even more. And here's one of them. Here, Ananias has committed a sin, and Peter says that that sin is against the Holy Spirit. But a verse later, he says the sin is against God himself. So what we have is Peter, an apostle of Jesus, equating a sin against the Holy Spirit as one and the same thing as sinning against God himself. We have the beginnings of Trinitarian thought, or the Trinity in solution. So that's just kind of a fun thing to point out. It's not the only verse like that, but it's in the text, and it's Trinity Sunday. How could I not say it? Okay, so we have temple. We have Trinity. The third theological element in this passage is the reality of the spiritual world. There are very real forces in the world of good and evil. But even more than forces, there are very real spiritual beings that are at work behind the veneer of the material world. 
First, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in this text. The Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of God, perpetuates the will and initiatives of God. In our, in our text this evening, the Spirit empowers the church to boldly proclaim the Word of God. And the, church, uh, uh, the, the Spirit also empowers the church to form a new community. So not only is the church the, the new temple of God, it is the new people of God. So here's an example. In Deuteronomy 15, we see promises of what happens when God's people will finally follow him uh, fully and faithfully. And there's an expectation that when that happens, people would relieve each other's debt and that there would be no more poverty or indentured servitude to each other within the people of God because they'll just take care of each other. So when we see the Spirit working in and through the wealthy, and they begin to um, selling extra plots of land in order to support the poor among them, it's more than just sort of some hippie commune or early communism or something like that. This is a, a, a living sign of the age of the Spirit. That's, that's how Luke is framing this. And when we see the Spirit working in and through the people, it shows that these expectations are coming to pass. So in our example, we're introduced to this man named Joseph. Joseph was a Levite from the priestly class, and he was from an island called Cyprus, which is kind of off Lebanon and Syria, kind of in between and out in the Mediterranean Sea. Cyprus was um, settled in the mid-300s BC, and Joseph was likely a diaspora Jew, someone who was Jewish that his family had settled there a long time ago, and so he's practicing his faith, his Judaism, but in a pagan context. So he's going to speak differently, he's going to know Greek, he's going to know some Arabic, uh, and he's just going to have a different way of practicing his Judaism. And for whatever reason, he's now in Jerusalem visiting, probably for Pentecost, right? And then he gets caught up in this. And we don't know his story much beyond that, except for what happens later in his life, but somehow Jesus has gripped him, has changed him, and he's caught up in this move of the Spirit. And so the other thing we know is that, you know, Joseph is like, I don't know, like I'm born in 1975 and like every other kid in my class was named Chris that year. I don't know, it's just like there's a lot of Chris's my age. Well, Joseph was like super common in the ancient world. And uh, so a lot of people like, like Joseph's and actually Jesus was a super common name. Yeshua, uh, uh, Paul was a common, or Saul was a common name. Like all these biblical names. And so almost everybody had nicknames, right? So Peter, Cephas, and, uh, and, and you've got Saul becomes Paul, and, and Joseph is known as Barnabas. And Barnabas is a wealthy man. You know, in the first century AD, there really wasn't a middle class at all. Only 10% of people in the ancient Near East in the first century owned their own house, and less than 2% were considered uh, extremely wealthy, while over 80% were extremely poor. In this case, Joseph not only has land to spare, but he sells farmland, land that could help produce income. So this is a big sacrifice. And he sells this land and he brings the money to the church at the apostles' feet, the new central location of where the Spirit dwells. And the Holy Spirit has taken his generous heart and encouraged him to be exceedingly generous. See, the Spirit, uh, somebody said recently, it's not my thing. I'm just going to say it because it's good. The Spirit is a gentleman. The Spirit never forces himself to change you when you don't want to be changed. The Spirit nags. 
Spirit convicts. The Spirit points things out. Thank, thank you, Holy Spirit. But the Spirit never forces his way or her way on you. The Spirit encourages what's already there. Right? So Joseph is this man who is predisposed to generosity, and the Spirit will supercharge his generosity. And he is abundantly generous here. The Spirit of God is moving powerfully behind the material world, working in the hearts and minds of God's people to reflect the will of God on earth. The Spirit creates community, releases generosity, encourages us to sacrifice for the good of others, equips people powerfully to do the work of God's kingdom here on earth. But there's also another player at work, and in chapter 5, we're introduced to the Satan again. The Satan is known by many names in the Bible, but the devil or the prince of darkness is here known as Ha-Satanas, the accuser. The Satan tempts and accuses and influences, and in this passage, we see that Ananias and Sapphira are filled not with the Holy Spirit, but with the Satan. You may recall that the story, of, the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, there's a husband and wife, two people have been given much, like a whole lot, it's like the Garden of Eden, they've been given everything from God. And they end up being seduced by the evil one. And the evil one does not make them do anything, but he plants seeds of doubt and encourages them toward the way of evil already potentially present in their hearts. And every single one of us has the potential right, to choose evil. And you and I both know the times when we've done that, both through deeds that we've done and things that we've not done because of cowardice. In a similar way, the Satan fills the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. And that means he encourages what was already present in their hearts, fear and greed and pride. Any of those things present in your heart in a minuscule way even? Those are opportunities for the evil one. See, Ananias and Sapphira didn't have to sell their land. We know that the early church, not everybody sold their stuff because there's houses that they meet in, right, all throughout the book of Acts. And later on, people will have other things to sell and they'll help each other out. Like, you got to understand that Acts 2 and Acts 4 here, this selling of things was to help people in need. It wasn't to bring everyone to the same level. That's not what they're talking about. So Ananias and Sapphira don't have to sell their land at all, and they don't have to give the proceeds to the church when they do sell their land. Like, it's totally their land. They don't have any obligation to do that. But instead, they sold their land, and they said that they were giving the whole amount to the Lord via the apostles, while in reality holding part of it back. They wanted the glory of saying, hey, we're contributing, when in reality, they were tempted by greed and pride and maybe fear. I'm not a psychologist. We should be careful not to say what their motivations were. All we know are the bare facts of what happened. They hold something back. And they thought, apparently, that they could do so without God knowing. Or maybe they thought he did know but just wouldn't care. And what we see is that the Spirit of God is 
A, far superior to the evil one. In the midst of this very real spiritual warfare, take heart, the gates of hell will not overcome the ultimate destiny of the church. Amen, right? You can say that. Let's everyone just say amen to that because that's an important one. The gates of hell will not overpower the final destiny of the church. Amen. Like, I might get chewed up and spit out, but my security is secure. You might get chewed up and spit out. Your security is secure. And all of the, any holy and pure investment you're making in kingdom work, I think will be redeemed someday. It is not wasted. That is the hope of the gospel. All right, getting off script. That's a, that might be a better sermon. Anyway, um, so the caution is choose our allegiances wisely. You never hear about evil winning in the long game. And all the promises of God are that his way, his kingdom, his church will not be overrun. Okay? Choose your allegiances wisely. So we see three theological kind of higher order themes here in the passage, temple, trinity, and spiritual realities. But what about the practical? What about our lives? And what do we still do with this weird story? So I want to dig just a little bit deeper now and consider two concepts, holiness and grace. Okay, so I started the story about one of the ships I used to serve on in the Coast Guard. And, and I mentioned how normally, even though the engine room and all the systems were super powerful and dangerous forces, you really didn't have to think about the danger on an average day. Uh, because there's so many safeguards, so many regulations and warning placards and redundant, oh, all that, yep. Yeah fire suppression systems, what you did is you just made the engines go so they got you from point A to point B. But on that day when we had an issue, the raw power that actually had to be dealt with, you couldn't put it behind a safety screen anymore. There was no like redundancy system that was going to get it work again. You had to deal with the raw power um, that was coming out of that thing. And in a similar way, most of us, most of the time, live life and enjoy the benefits of God's work all around us without much of a concept of how dangerous, really, His holiness is. But that doesn't mean it's not there. You know, in the Bible, from time to time, we see God's holiness or his glory revealed. And what happens? We end up with a guy like Moses who can't even look at God when he passes by. This is Moses, like the most humble man in the world and the guy who's faithful to God. And, and he finally, God succumbs to his request to let his presence be known. And he sees God's butt as he walks by. He doesn't even show his face. It's a weird story. It has, it has something to say about holiness. Like we can't bear to, to be in that glorious presence. It's like being close to, I don't know, the sun, too close to the sun. It's powerful. And you have Isaiah that Elizabeth read earlier from Isaiah 6. And, and he sees God in a vision. It's not even like a real face-to-face. -face. And what happens is instantly he knows he's in over his league. He's like, I'm done for. Oh, he falls and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And it takes this angel coming and metaphorically cleansing him with hot coals. You see Peter fall on his face when he realizes Jesus is the Son of God. And in, in John's revelation, you see the scene that causes him to shake in holy fear as he peeks inside the worshipful chamber of God 
in heaven. In Exodus 19, Moses is about to go up to receive the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and God warns the people, don't even get close to the mountain, you'll die, and if your animals touch it, you'll die. And that's crazy holy. In our passage this evening, we see a bit of this raw power of the Spirit unleashed. The disciples prayed to God for, for boldness to proclaim the Word of God, and the Spirit answers by pouring out more of Himself into the church. And I think we ought to be careful sometimes what we ask for. I'm not saying don't ask for that. I've been asking for it, as I said last week, more recently lately. Because we can't minister in this world in our own wits and our own strength. We need God's power and His encouragement, don't we? But what I am saying is that this story shows us like, man, woman, be careful. Be careful, tread lightly. People bring their sacrifices and offerings to the apostles' feet, and when they do that, they're bringing them to the holy God. And and when Ananias and Sapphira bring their offering to the apostles' feet, they play casual with the holiness of God. And the scriptures say that Ananias kept back some of the money with his wife's full knowledge. The translation is a bit misleading to modern ears like mine because that doesn't sound like that bad right in the greek the word used for kept back some of the money is enos bisata which i know who cares right but what, let me tell you what it means it's the word that is used for fixing the books or embezzling money right and the word used to describe sapphira which by the way her name is very rare it means sapphire if you try and write sapphira you're your autocorrect will actually write sapphire instead of sapphira. Um, happened to me over and over again. Um, very rare name. This was a very wealthy couple. This was not like their last track of land that they sold. Okay? But when it says that she was aware, that Greek word for aware of what her husband was doing is the same word for collusion, a word we've heard a lot about lately, haven't we? So no collusion. That, but anyway, so uh, there's, there's, there's match fixing, not match fixing, that's soccer. Um, there's book fixing, embezzlement language, and there's collusion language. That means they were in cahoots together. And that means these, these two actively deceived the apostles. But the point is that when you deceive the ones in whom the Spirit dwells, you deceive God who dwells in that temple. God is holy. He does not always judge immediately. I would not be standing here. You wouldn't be sitting there if he judged immediately. He almost never does. But stories like this, as hard as they are to stomach, are so important to remind us that God is absolutely holy. Dangerous even if taken lightly. And how can you not just mention the Pavinci children, right? And Narnia where... They have not met Aslan yet, and they're asking him about him. They say, well, is he safe? And their hosts say, of course he's not safe, but he's good, and he is good. It is the occasional revelation of the holiness of God that so highlights his amazing grace. In reality, every single one of us deserves what Ananias and Sapphira received, and yet, by the grace of God, he almost always withholds judgment. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. He does not always give us what we deserve. 
He is by nature patient and long-suffering, willing to wait for people to come to place their faith in Jesus. And here, now, is the most practical thing you and I can do with this message. We have read a story that should make us sense the right and holy fear of the Lord. Now let us consider the holy grace of the Lord, who chooses not to zap us or condemn us. Instead, he came down to die for us, to take our sin on and the consequences of that sin. Through faith in Christ, in Jesus, our sin is placed on him. And apparently, theologically speaking, if God were to come and judge us like he did to Ananias and Sapphira today, he would say, actually, my son is taking care of that. I've got it. And there's more. You and I are not just forgiven with clean slates. Believe it or not, if your faith is in Christ and you are a baptized follower of him, you are a part of the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is an amazing designation. We become people who are free to be like our God, not out of fear, but out of gratitude and joy. In Christ, God makes us free, and in his spirit, we're invited and empowered to live into his character. Would you pray with me? Lord, I got to confess, this is still a weird story to me. I don't, I don't like to think of you that way. And I know it's because I've put you in my own categories and my own safe box. So in a reserved, humble, don't take this the wrong way, way, I thank you for this passage that, that kind of breaks the walls of the box I've put you in. That reminds me and hopefully us that we serve an amazingly powerful and holy God. And that if that relatively minor infraction is worth death, then I must say you are the most gracious being I have ever encountered because I deserve so much more than what they got. Lord, I pray that we would embrace your grace, that we would be honest with our sin, not out of fear, but out of relief, that you, Lord Jesus, have taken that on yourself. And I pray that you would set captives free here today who are stuck in cycles of shame and doubt. Lord, may your forgiveness be felt by all who want it today. And help us to take seriously that we are an expression of your holy dwelling, Lord. May we represent you well in our thoughts and deeds and our words. May we treat one another with dignity and respect due to you. Amen.